Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking Podcast with Fab and Eddie. If you like this podcast and past episodes, subscribe, like, share with a friend, write a review, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got activists and artists straight out of Mississippi, Genesis B. We get into the Mississippi flag, the Confederate monument movement, and the industry of activism. So kick back and listen up. Genesis, welcome to the pod. How you doing? How you living? Where you, where you at right now? I'm in Biloxi, Mississippi right now. And thank hey. y'all for having me. It's good to see both of you. Yeah, likewise. I, I, don't, I can't fathom how surreal this moment is for you. You know, I, I kind of like at what age, and you know, you come from a family of activists and people on the front line who've been, you know, fighting for so long. But, you know, at what age did, you, did it kind of, come to light when you started recognizing that, uh, you know, your flag and your state flag was like not representative and actually was this like beacon of hate towards you? I would say probably around age five when my father, my father took me to a Klan rally as an opposing voice. uh, And I didn't know what was going on, but I remember them flying all different types of versions of this Confederate flag. And I noticed that in Mississippi, that flag flew as our state flag, you know? Mm. So I, I first was aware of the kind of, like the correlation between white supremacy and that image when I was really, really young, but it didn't really click for me until I was older and like began going to elementary school in, um, in Biloxi and middle school when some of my friends were repping that flag. Some of my white friends were repping that flag. And uh, I kind of had moments of cognitive dissonance. I didn't understand why. So we would have these conversations and they would get super defensive. And then I wouldn't bring it up anymore. <laughs> or, you know, just all these little things that just didn't feel right. There was always this tension. And then I began getting involved in activism when I was in high school. And that's when it really was clear to me, like, oh, this is like a thing. Like my elementary school was, was named Jeff Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy. My community college, before I got accepted into NYU, I went to community college and it was called Jeff Davis. It just clicked, you know, all throughout my life, really, you know? So those kids that you, you know, were early friends with that were like flag-toting people and proudly, was the flag thing, would it only sort of ruffle feathers when you would bring it up or like were they in, inherently sort of meaner to you, meaner friends or something, because they love the flag? Like, how, how did that How did yeah. that reconcile exactly? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I use the term friend loosely. Did we go to okay. each other's house? No. Did we, <laughs> did we ride the same school bus? Yes. You know, did we, you know, frequent the same, of course, like basketball games, football games? Of course, we did that. But we weren't, like, deep friends. There was always okay. this barrier of, like, you know, they're not, you know, they're invited to come to my house, but they never come. I've never been invited to their house. Those, so when I say friend, I mean, we, you know, acquaintances, we frequent the same places. And, you know, they might have like, the, in high school, they would have like the Confederate flag as their phone cover or something like that, you know? <laughs> they weren't like waving the flag as they walked into the school. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, that's so interesting. I think 
you like fam family from Mississippi, you know, mine's is too, but I, I didn't, you know, I don't have many contemporary ties with Mississippi. Like I've visited for family reunions and that kind of stuff, but I never lived there or anything. But I think people who maybe don't live in the South see this flag on TV and conceive of it as like this sort of confrontational emblem, but the, you know, but kind of the way that you describe the kids you went to school with just, just sort of on the back of their phone covers, it was just kind of like wa the water that they drank. And, you know, it was just sort of a, uh, an icon of sort of everyday life. Can you talk a bit about, because I think there's people miss the complexity of what that flag means to folks in the South and how it can just sort of be this ambient culture that is just sort of around them and that they grow up within. Can you talk about like what the flag means or, or or how they would articulate how the flag means or even the Confederates, other Confederate symbols mean to those folks? Yeah, absolutely. Because I've had a lot of discussion with, with neo-Confederate millennials and things of that nature. Um, everyone sees it differently. So don't, uh, mm. I don't want this to be a generalization, but a lot of them see it as they're honoring their ancestors who fought against the tyranny of the Union Army or the, the United States of America trying to infringe on their state rights. The major right that they were upset about was the right to own slaves, the right to enslave right, other right. beings and profit off of slave labor. But that part gets buried in the whitewashing when their grandparents and great-great-grandparents, you know, um, teach them how to glorify the heritage. So that's really what it is. It's like honoring ancestors, honoring history, honoring those who fought bravely against the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Gen so that was Genesis. I was going to just say, I saw you did like a video series, like maybe a year or two ago with someone you grew up with. And I'm totally blanking, but I remember watching it and he was talking about, you know, the, that just kind of honoring of his grandparents. But I did remember at a certain point at the end, he was like, I understand though, that it hurts you. And so I'm for what you're doing, but I'm still for my side, which I thought was like nice in a way, but also still twisted. Because he was, he was saying that he recognized that it's something that is hate is harmful to you, and clearly knowingly and like recognizing that, but but couldn't separate or back away from it. Which to me was like, it's like this. It's the same thing. I, I, I you know, if someone's like, I understand Donald Trump is a super hateful person and all these things, but I'm still gonna vote for him. It's like I don't know. That's like the modern equivalency to me. And, and mm. someone could see it a little bit differently, but like, I, I don't know, I just, do you feel like now that the flag is coming down that some people are changing or is it still just like, we recognize it's coming down, but I don't care, like I'm to my grave, stars and bars. Um, I think that people, it's not so much people are changing, it's that the death of George Floyd, may he rest in peace, shifted a lot of Americans, especially a lot of white Americans who previously have been on the fence, who previously refused to use their voice and their access and their resources and privilege to help. So now that those people are in the game now, all of a sudden in Mississippi, there was like a poll that was floating around, you know, the internet that the majority of Mississippians now want the flag change. A small majority, like above 50, but below, but it was below 50%. So it's those white folks who were on the fence before finally saying, well, enough is enough. I want to be on the right side of, a hi of history all of a sudden. And I don't say that with shade, you know, welcome. Like we welcome you to the fight. <laughs> you know? There's nothing wrong, you know, better late than never, I suppose, but those who who still voted to keep the flag, they're still going to hold on 
to the, their stars and bars heritage. You get what I'm saying? Now I'm not saying all of them, but most of them are. They're gonna they're gonna go to their grave and teaching their kids a whitewashed version of that history for sure. I would say, and it, you know, you mentioned sort of whitewashed history. I would call that the lost cause. The lost cause is basically, you know, the reason the Confederate flag is, you know, people look at it and and, and you know, on its face is absurd, right? With with the, with the debates on Twitter, like Confederacy lasted for four years. Why is the flag? So, you know, people like poke fun of the absurdity of it, but it's not actually just the Confederacy as a, as a physical material institution. But the lost cause really comes after the Civil War in sort of dignifying, you know, the logic behind the reason why the South went into Civil War. So it has a lot to do, you know, probably the biggest book on this is probably David Blight's Race and Reunion. And it, it was through the lost cause that the South, after the Civil War, gained its dignity after a massive, massive loss in war. And it, and it is sort of like, it was clear back then that they went to war for slavery. But after they lost, it was like, wait, wait, no, there was a lost cause. The actual cause was, was, was a cause for state rights and sovereignty mm. and valor and dignity. And, you know, we didn't lose for this, this weird sort of fable cause of, of slavery. It was actually for this different cause that is lost. And we need to tell that story and sort of uh, get our face back in terms of, of, of what reunion with the North, with the Union looks like, you gotcha. know, so, so yeah. Lost Cause, as, as when it comes with it, comes, you know, the embrace of minstrelsy and the happy slave and mammy and, you know, the notion that slavery was actually a dying, benign institution. And slaves actually liked it because we treated them gently. Like that's all of a part of the lost cause. And the reason, you know, the, that emblem flag isn't one of shame, but is one of, of sort of valor and heritage um, that just doesn't die. So it's not literally the institution of the Confederacy, but it is what the, the logic of the Confederacy that lives on um, and, you know, to this day. So that's what sort of the lost cause term refers to. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Well, you know, I th and I think that extends to the to the statues and stuff. I mean, your protest against the flag, you know, you could say is connected to um, Confederate monuments and statues and stuff like that. You know, you know, before this uh, George Floyd moment, can you talk about how your protest and, and your mission was viewed before it was like more trendy to do so? If I could be a little bit more cynical, um, and you know, your 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 views on the Confederate statues as well. Well, yeah, I mean, when I, I did my protest in 2016, and that went viral, where I held the noose around my neck, draped myself in the Confederate flag at SOBs in New York. And right, the right. backlash I received, because this was before this was trendy, this was before public figures were kind of um, speaking out boldly against this, right? Uh, other than my, my sis, Anjanu Ellis, the actress, she, she, you know, she wore a carpet on uh, a dress on the red carpet saying take it down before that um but you know no one was really doing that nobody was speaking about this this issue and so i think when people saw the backlash and then realized that the confederate emblem was still in the mississippi state flag which a lot of people did not know around america you know that's what yeah. was interesting yeah, yeah. to me i was like oh well people don't know no that we're the last that we're the last to have it in and I don't think that anyone should worship another human because humans are complex people. 
You get what I'm saying? I could, you could point to any great man or woman in history and someone will break down on why they were problematic. So I think that we should glorify the ideas of people, the words of people. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson's words, watch George Washington's words, where, where the words are promoting the health and well-being of all people. Like these are the things that we should be promoting and teaching, not idolizing images of men. So with the Confederate monuments, I've always just felt like that. Like take take all monuments down, who you know of of humans. Um, but the flag, you know, although what I did sparked a lot of conversation and like brought it to the national level, people before me have been fighting to remove that flag for decades and decades and decades, decades. My father brought a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi that made it to the appellate court against that flag. As a Muslim man, he said, that is a religious symbol. That is the St. Andrew's cross that's flying in our state flag. Oh, As a Muslim, wow. he went that, that, that route, right? Which was- Yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> no, but it didn't take. So my father, my grandfather, many other people's grandfathers and grandmothers have fought to remove that, that emblem, you know? And it's really, I guess maybe because of the internet, now the internet exists, you know, and so when I did, when I did that protest, it just spread like wildfire. And it brought that conversation, especially here in Mississippi, and made people really take a side. Like my protest was polarizing, which yeah. uh, d- disturbed me a little bit as the person who caused a lot of polarization, but it ultimately needed to happen. Like the conversation needed to happen and people needed to pick a side. Um, and stop acting like this big elephant in the room isn't offending 40%, probably more, of the Mississippi population. We were talking about this before you jumped on, but um, everyone loves bringing up the slippery slope argument with, with statues and all these things. I went to George Washington University. You know, I, I imagine at some point all the university names that inherently are problematic will get changed, but I. <laughs> It was interesting what you were saying about the words versus the names. Um, what is your feeling on kind of university names? Or I guess, I guess everything is a little bit different, but even someone like, um, you know, George Washington, who was our first president, obviously slave owner, nothing about slavery, wasn't brutality and horrible and all the things. When it comes to university names and just like anything with our founding fathers, do, do you think that like they all just everything just did be stricken down and it just kept to textbooks and just be contextualized within the conversation? I haven't really thought too much about that. Um, my good friend and one of the producers of the documentary that followed my flag fight, flag fight uh, his name is Adam Granick, young Jewish man from Chicago. One really good friend of mine, he... I have to credit him with this idea of possibly building monuments or renaming things, uh, using ideas, using the ideas of these people, you know, because that was actually his idea. Although I've always viewed these things as idol worship. When it comes, I just had to say that, I gotta give my boy credit. When it comes (laughs) to the name of colleges, you know, When I went to Jeff Davis Community College, my brother and I did generate a petition to get the name changed when, I, when we were kids. It's hard to, the slippery slope thing is hard, you know what I mean? I think it's a little too much, it's a little too far from my brain to stretch that we rename all entities because everyone's problematic, you get what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> 
I don't know. Yeah, you, like, you know, it's true. It's like I was reading some stuff about like Susan B. Anthony, who like growing up, I only heard about her on the suffrage movement. But then like hearing some of the beef she had with like, you know, the black movement, um, you know, it's like, like the more you, you keep cut, cutting it and you're right, like we're all complicated people. Like yeah. there's, pl there's plenty of, uh, Eddie and I were talking about this with Jim, like there's plenty of men you know, fighting for, you know, race equity who are super problematic when it comes to patriarchy and feminism, right? It's like, right. or transphobic like, or homophobic. And transphobic mm -hmm. or homophobic. Mm -hmm. But like, you might not fully know that about them right now because you just hear like some amazing speech they gave on race, right? And so, yeah, I mean, people are really problematic at our core so it, it does and maybe that's maybe that is the point of all of these conversation it's like we need to start understanding the complexity of people stop dealing with this hero villain mentality like america does that i speak to my friends who are from different cultures like they don't do the same thing but they don't they don't hold heroes up like this and hold heroes down as if there's no complexity that intertwine the two you know, and maybe that is, is really the idea or the, um, the knowing that we are relearning as, as this whole conversation goes down, that we are all complex human beings and we have to stop idolizing celebrity worship. You know, America is all about the celebrity to the point where all our kids are trying to get famous on TikTok and trying to just be famous for the sake of being famous because we idolize heroes and we demonize villains without uh, without taking the time to understand that people not things people are not things people are not the labels that we ascribe to each other we are all complex human beings multifaceted worthy of dignity you know and maybe that's really what all of this is going to bring about a new consciousness a new zeitgeist in america to where we can really come back to that ancient understanding of human beings uh, genesis your view on all statues, just hero worship in general, you know, I, I totally co-sign because when you oversimplify things, not only do you do that with people, you do that with, with countries. America is very complicated and it is not all just good people, evil people and like feelings. Like that is not what, that's not the whole thing of American history. You know, that's, a, and that's what people fight so much with, with sort of the, the Confederacy. It was like the Confederacy and the Union, they were both right. You know, we were both, we both won, you know, even though it cost 800,000 lives, like we were both, so we can both coexist kind of thing, you know, and um, you know, we base, base our reunion on the subjugation and subordination of black people. They, you're right, they were always inferior. Like, you know, we can agree on that. So don't mind us while we impose Jim Crow in the South and you all do your thing up North, you know, that kind of, and let's, let's get back to you working together kind of thing, you know. But the hero worship thing is really interesting with the statues. Cause you know, my big thing is, you know, I'm not uh, sort of uh, opposed to taking down all statues if, if, if it's for concrete logic, but you know, folks who are the Confederate statue removal movement, just without skipping a beat and then just moving over to Ulysses S. Grant, it's like, well, these are different things. You understand? Like this is not, you know, Lee and Grant are not the same person. You can't just throw them all in the same bag. Like the Confederate monuments were put up 40 years after the Civil War as emblems of terrorism to impose Jim Crow and to show the black population, which Mississippi has the largest share in terms of per state, um, you know, where their place in society is. Like, that's not what the Statue of Liberty is. That's not what U.S. Grant was, was designed to do. There are different intents 
and impacts with these statues. You know, should we get rid of all statues? I'm not opposed, but you know, I think a lot of people just sort of throw it all in the same bag and I don't want to get lose sight on that distinction, you know? So, I mean, you know, that's all I wanted to say, but I, I feel you understand like the, the, the hero worshiping in general, like I'm, I 100% agree, you know, push back on that, let me know. But I want to move into what Far was, was, was about to say. Yeah, so, I mean, we're talking about hero culture and I think we're all pretty much in agreement of just how problematic hero culture and like culture celebrity can be. And I think what's interesting is I don't know much about the kind of the history of activism. Well, I know some of the history of activism. I don't know the history of the business of activism, but I think we're, we are entering into an interesting place where everything's moving so fast. And, and we were talking about this a little bit with Leon two weeks ago and just his experience going through what he went through and why Uh, certain people, my boy. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) That, that guy is just dropping gems. Uh, but he, you know, he, t- he talked about uh, some of the issues he had with his lawyer, who's Brianna's lawyer and Ahmad's lawyer. And he's been pretty public about it uh, on Twitter, just about saying that, it, I mean, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna say these are my words, not his words, but kind of the guy's like, you know, he's a publicity hound. You know, he's like chasing the things he wants to chase and not really about it. And I think there's this interesting blend, which is, and we talked about this a few pods back, but to be an activist is really hard because there's really no business model to it, right? <laughs> Most activists are making no money and are just in the community and they're trying to do whatever you can. But every so once in a while, there's a few that pop to the, to the front who suddenly get a, a wash of attention and basically become like celebrity activists. And at that point, it's like, they're pro- I have to imagine they're very cognizant of what got them there. And they can't just pay attention to the things that maybe the people in the community or in the streets want to, them to pay attention to. They have to pay attention to what's going to get them the most noise, right? Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean someone is like malintended, but like obviously everyone loves taking shots at like Sean King, right? I don't know yeah. if Sean's like a good guy or bad guy or whatever. I know up he's called, put, brought a lot of people into the conversation. He's got a lot of eyeballs. He also has a lot of like black women who like, I really respect like calling him out a lot, which is a massive red flag. And he's also had a lot of articles about him raising all sorts of money for things that like seemingly don't, aren't clear. I can take a step back and be like, you know what, to our earlier point, life is nuanced. And he might be just a really good talking head, but just an atrocious business person. Maybe there's more malintent than that. But I do think this plays all into this, like (laughs) your hero culture again, where like yeah. people like Sean and others were very quickly, whether they wanted to be or not, suddenly thrusted into this like hero worshiping and then like what happens to them. So I'm kind of curious of what you're seeing now because there's a lot of names in just a month's time that went from being like micro people that we kind of knew about that suddenly have millions of followers and all sorts of expectations uh, and kind of just what comes next from this. So. Yeah, I'm curious as someone who has been an activist, whose family's been an activist when it wasn't sexy, where no one was getting speaking deals and all sorts of stuff, like just what is what does this next phase kind of feel like to you? Sure, sure. Um, I have deep empathy for those who are addicted to fame. Fame is the, the most powerful drug in America. Mm-hmm. It supersedes heroin, it supersedes money it supersedes any addiction you think you could fame is is that so 
I have empathy for those who lose sight of the true cause and chase fame because it is an erosion of your spirit. When that process begins, it erodes your spirit and you lose yourself. It's like when you have a child star. How many child stars do you know who are still alive or who are not addicted to drugs or, you know, have just faded into obscurity because their validation of them as a human being was based on their fame, right? So fame is a very, very powerful thing spiritually. So I guess for myself, you know, I've kind of always been in entertainment since I was 12, you know, but, you know, never at a high, high level. I was like a local celebrity when I was here in Mississippi, this and the other. When that protest happened in 2016, it was the scariest thing in the world. It's, I thought it was what I wanted, was this huge platform so I could share my ideas and, 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 and spread my ideas, my, 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 my. And then it happened and I got this national platform and it scared the hell out of me because now what is the intention? I always tell, I always tell younger artists who I work with, like my clients, your intention rules everything. And when fame is thrown into the mix, it erodes your attention. It really makes you take a step back and say, okay, what is my intention here? Is it just to spread this message? Okay, you spread it. Now what? Why can't you fall back? So I have deep, deep empathy. Um, and, and we see it everywhere. We see it. We see it in our circles, you know, and, and it, sometimes it becomes more apparent who is really chasing the fame train and who is really dedicated to progress. I'm telling you, that's a slippery slope, bro. That's a slippery slope. Because any day now, you're on that way and you're gaining this fame. Any day you could wake up and you've lost your footing on, on what, what your intention is. It's deep, bruh. Like, fame is very deep. And I think those who have experienced it even a little bit, like, understand. Understand that. And, you know, that, that's why for myself, I call myself the introverted orator. And, like, I don't really tweet much. Before the flag thing, you can see I don't really have any tweets. I retweet people. I don't really want that attention again <laughs> because it was, it was, and it's not out of fear. It's just that what's the point? What's the point of everything that we do? You know, it's like people want to have fame. I'd rather have a legacy. I'd rather have a legacy. I'd rather be like, oh, this girl did, did this one thing and it sparked this. That's cool. You know, and, and we'll continue to learn from what she did. But like, I don't like that's that's just scary, bro. Fame is scary. That's all. I, <laughs> I guess that's the point. <laughs> in this yeah. No, no. That that's. I, I definitely feel that. And it it was really interesting to see with the short film we did with Leon, and you know what, you know, people on the surface thought it was going to be all about police brutality, but it was really about mental health and therapy and healing, which I thought was so much more powerful. And then, you know, we spent all this time creating this curriculum, which we're still excited to, to work with educators on and, you know, but anyone can access it, right? And it was literally spending hours with Leon, like talking through like the books that mattered most to him, like why he loves journaling and like what would be interesting to have journal prompts. Like we put, it's all Leon like front and center, right? To his process. And like for better or for worse, like Leon's story is one like the more like high profile stories of, of a survivor, right? Of a terrible situation, but like what happens next, which honestly is like probably more, many more people are in trauma than sadly people who've like passed away. Um, you know, so there's just, 
to me, a much more like scalable way that that could be positively impacted. And Leon and I were just, I don't know, we, we had this like approach of some people that Leon knew and we knew ahead of time that were like quote unquote influencer activists in this space with like sizable uh, reach and none of them helped us. A bunch of them were like, oh, this is cool, said nice things. No one helped us. And it was crazy to me because I was like, I saw them tweeting and messaging all day long about dead bodies and shootings, but no one wanted to talk about therapy or healing or something else. And I was like, this is really mm -hmm. interesting to me because your whole platform says that, that you should actually care about this story and want to like have this story help people. But like not for a second could you be bothered to get off message about just continuously talking about the just the trauma side instead of like a healing side and that just was a it was something I guess I imagined would happen but I was really shocked to the amount of people that we had pretty good relationships with who just could <laughs> not be bothered they surprised yeah. you huh Michael a little <laughs> bit yeah <laughs> I mean I guess like that's like I guess how naive I was to it but oh. no it's not that you're naive you you until you experience it you you don't know you assume the best in people like that's a good way to be you know that's how I am too I ex assume the best you and I have had this conversation before about this concept of trauma porn and why mm -hmm. you know why I was skeptical mm. at first because you know I did I couldn't I didn't know yet whether you guys were utilizing trauma porn to to further your interests um, I know that that's not the case now, but that's the case with a lot of organizations and a lot of these celebrity activists, man, I'm telling you, they will, they will talk about dead bodies and the, and the, the dirty, nasty, disgusting, disturbing aspects. But as soon as something positive comes of it or a way to change it, why would they want to change it? They're getting all this notoriety talking about this negative trauma stuff. It's not in their best interest to actually change things. Is, is this that deep? Is that deep? It goes to that intention, you know? And so people like Leon, people like Chris, people, you know, other men and women who have gone through these horrific experiences and then came out on the other end doing these very positive things, um, there's attention for that too. Deserved attention for that, but not, not all um, of your allies, as you saw, are really interested in positive impact in our communities. They're really, they're really not. It's really not that. It's not about that. That you, you guys are living in different realities. Yeah, totally. It, it's so much easier to grab someone's attention if you're saying something super, even if it's a, somewhat of a truth. But if it's not like gaslighting or really like getting someone, you don't. It, I think they'd recognize that you're not hooking anyone, and. It's, it's much easier to go the gaslighting route uh, than the other route, which, you know, is a little bit more, but it's just, it's funny because one is a business. I get business, I get marketing, um, but it's just, you know, but it's also not really supposed to be that <laughs> at the same time. We're supposed to be fixing problems and, and creating solutions and um, building bridges. So it's just a, a fascinating thing. Uh, I don't know if you saw what happened with Van Jones. This, did you see what happened with Van Jones this week? Mm -mm. So, so Van, and I only read part of the article, but he, you know, I think, I think most kind of us, well, he was obviously very involved with the First Step Act, which was legislation passed by the Trump administration. 
but what wasn't said was he was like behind the scenes working with like Jared Kushner to like literally write the internal like legislation and all the, he was basically like advising the Trump administration on, on the back end, but he didn't publicize it. And then was like going on CNN and being like, oh, they're not that bad. This is actually pretty good. And so people are saying like, wait a second here, like, you know, it's not that like you can't do that, but it is like a bit ethically or morally gray for you to be kind of playing both sides of this. And especially when he is, you know, he is a business person and a, and a, and a talking head, but he also runs nonprofit organizations. And I think a lot of people would say he's done a lot of good, you know, progressive work. But yeah, I mean, he, it, it just seems like he's like another example of this. It doesn't mean that the composite of his work hasn't been good, but it's like as he's gotten bigger and bigger, you may, your intentions get skewed within probably like how he rationalized what he was doing. Yeah. So yeah. And this is, I wanted to, I want to unpack with the, the first thing I, I wanted to ask Genesis, you, your opinion on, on this, you know, whether it's, you know, Sean King or Van Jones or, you know, and they're not, you know, I would argue not necessarily unique. I think there's been many, many people that have fallen victim to being self-interested in the sort of industry or world of activism, you know, but Genesis, my question for you is when you have fame as sort of an expression of power, are people that come from a group that are historically disproportionately powerless, when those people get fame or some or some form of power, are they more susceptible to being corrupted by it? Just comparatively to, to folks that come from other groups that just had, have had power for a long time. You know, are black folks more susceptible to get corrupted by it because they, they have been so powerless? Um, I believe that power corrupts absolutely. Uh, no matter who you are, uh, now are, are some folks more susceptible to it in terms of the corruption? I don't think so. I really, really believe it's on a, because it is a, a spiritual erosion, it, it is on a case-by-case -case basis, and it de it's dependent on how strong that person is spiritually and how, how far their, their spirit deviates from its original source and intention. De depends on that. Uh, so many factors, environmental factors, um, health factors, uh, trauma factors. I think that it really is on a case-by-case -case basis because you take somebody who, who's always been in power, their family's always been in power, um, mm -hmm. look at like Trump, you know, and then he gets the ultimate power and, and, and acts an ass, you know? <laughs> he just, you know, seemingly doesn't know what to do with it, like truly what to do with it except to, you know, obtain more power, obtain more money, obtain more fame, um, because that's just his norm. That has been the norm of his family generationally. So I don't think Trump versus someone who's never had power, whose family's never had power, I, I, I don't think that we can do any mathematics on who's more susceptible to the corruption of power. I think it's on a spiritual case-by-case mm -hmm. -case basis. Interesting. I dig that. Sort of, and then you got the, the folks that come from the oppressed group and then they climb the ranks in the system of oppression and then start to benefit from it, you know, to the detriment of the oppressed group they just came from. Yeah, that's a different but, question. But, right, that's a different question. So then I would say, like, the biggest example to me is, is well, t probably Tavis Smiley is a pretty egregious example. <laughs> you know, Tavis Smiley, right? So you probably know, you know, I'm going with this G. Um, during the, the height of the, before the sort of the housing crash, one of the biggest offenders of peddling subprime loans 
and targeting black people was Wells Fargo. Um, and Tavis Smiley, his efforts were part and parcel of, of, of theirs in that he would hold in churches these wealth building seminars where he would be, I don't know what the financials were, but he definitely got financial kickbacks with each subprime loan that probably landed out of his seminars on behalf of Wells Fargo to the black community, right? You know, and this and this this didn't come out until after the crash, and it was uncovered that subprime loans were were given to black people regardless of credit. You know, if they had good credit or bad credit, they get the same subprime loans as they were targeted in this sort of reverse redlining type thing. And Tavis Smiley helped to orchestrate that. You know, however, at whatever level in the system, he benefited from it specifically. You know, but he he wouldn't have the ability to fill that room and peddle those loans if he was not a sort of a leader in the black community in the first place, right? So then you get to to him personally benefiting off of the system. Um, You know, that is, I think that, like you said, that that's sort of different than just sort of power corrupting spiritually, but somebody that's actually benefiting in in a really fucked up way, Um, you know? And then even just, and this, this is probably not really popular, but like, Far, and I don't know if you got to this part in Mercer Baradaran's book, The Color of Money, but even in the way that Madam C.J. Walker got rich, she doesn't get as rich as fast without segregation. Her market of Black people and Black women specifically, um, the buyers of her product, um, you know, it is not as efficient if people are not all already on top of each other in these segregated communities that she can just go and sell to. If it was more of a disparate market, it would have been harder to her for her to get so rich so fast. Is that, you know, does that mean that she is pro-segregation? No, not necessarily, but like, you know, these are things that, you know, maybe, I don't know, like maybe she, she liked that everybody was there together and she could sell very easily. But there are these things where these people arise you know, it, you know, and they kind of benefit from the system individually, specifically. And I think that that, you know, it, it sort of clouds things a little bit that a lot of people don't really know, you know? Right. To that, I would say, so there's an elephant in, in the room of this conversation and probably most conversations that y'all are having. When you walk into a circus, are you surprised to see a clown? Such is no. Such is every human under who was born and raised under a capitalistic structure. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? It's inherent. Mm-hmm. It's inherently taught to us to be this way. So mm-hmm. the cause is capitalism. And it goes to my second point of my social theory of people, not things like, what are you willing to do to obtain money? Whose mm-hmm. welfare are you willing to exploit or deny to obtain money? And are we all capable of this because we have been born and raised under a capitalistic structure? And if the answer to my question is yes, that we are all capable of it, then the capitalism is a catalyst to our moral and ethical erosion, which, and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed worldwide and here in America, locally, like this system of exploitation and, uh, get as much profit as fast as possible, you know, kind of, uh, you might have to disenfranchise these people. You might have to use <laughs> these people, you know, or just a little bit, you know, where, <laughs> where, where does that, where do you draw that line? Where do you right, draw right, that right. line? 
Cause I'm still, I'm sure. still trying to figure that out, you know? And that's, that's why yeah. I'm always screaming people, not things. And, um, that's going to be my, my cry until I die because that, that is really what this, this struggle is about. It's a spiritual struggle. Marx thought it was an economic struggle. Some think it's a political struggle. Yes. And the umbrella of all of that is a spiritual struggle that, that humans, humans are going through, you know, mm-hmm. and of how, how mm-hmm. we are disconnected from the planet. We are disconnected from source. And so that mm-hmm. disconnection it manifests in our behaviors towards each other and our supporting of the system, whether it's educationally uh, instilling capitalism in our children, in our systems, in our schools, to uphold this system that benefits few, just a few, and exploits Word. the rest. That's my, that's my take on that. Uh, I love what no, you're saying. And as you, you might remember, like I started my career in like the commercial real estate industry and I did stuff in and around it for a bunch of years. And like, Obviously, you know, Eddie talks about this a lot, like the biggest like wealth transfer or, or kind of uplift in the, you know, probably not in American history was the New Deal, which really only white people contributed to, but it was because of access to like homes and mortgages and all this. But I do hear often, you know, you hear like Jay-Z talking about like, I could have, you know, a building was going for 3 million like 10 years ago in Dumbo, like who's Dumbo, right? And, and it's always like professing all this money we could have bought, you know, made off commercial real estate. And so everyone's like, we got to get in this and got to get in this. But like the whole game of commercial real estate is once again, just a capitalism game of kind of like a rat race to the bottom. Cause there's a few people who are going to make a bunch of money off of it. And then everyone else is just forced having to pay more for housing, for goods, small, you know, every, everything just kind of cascades down. So you know, there's a, a, a guy, I mean, I'm not gonna say his name, but a guy who's just like a young entrepreneur out of Harlem that like Eddie and I were talking about, who's like doing really well, but like, you know, right around COVID, I was watching his Instagram. He was basically like, oh, y'all are still buying, like trying to be an entrepreneur or this and that. Like I'm stacking my chips in real estate. Like, you know, I'm like, basically I'm like, I'm smarter than y'all. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, sure. Like if we, if you all want to be like singular and just make more money, then sure. Yeah. Like go do that. But like, is the goal for us just to like singularly make more money and then so we can tell everyone that we made more money? Or is the goal for us to like actually figure out like a better situation for all? And so it's funny to your point of like him using Walker, like a lot of people, it's just born into the system. So you just think that like that, it's very easy for you to get confused. And it's even more easy to get confused because once you start becoming wealthy, there's like a level of like fame, whether that's broader fame or fame within a certain circuit that like that person just has all the answers because they have money when really what they've just done is found a little hack in the system to make money like we all know people who are like journalists or artists who are way brighter than some of our business friends but our business friends right. found a hack in the capitalistic system and to just to make more it. money so they chose to exploit it mm-hmm. yeah well whether they uh, uh, chose to in the beginning once they found it out they didn't they didn't look back Right. More powerful. Also, that you know, like that's what I'm saying. It's like it's hard. I have deep empathy for people who whose whose spiritual erosion has been affected by this system. Like, there, it's interesting. So, so I'm Sufi. So I ascribe to Sufism. It's the mystic form of Islam. It's very similar to Franciscan, um, where the material items. You know, you you really learn to understand that material items. Uh, they mean nothing. Uh, they are just tools, uh, but they're a means to an end. And the end should be welfare of an equal and 
equity and equality for the welfare of everyone around you, whoever you're able to touch, right? I'm not saying, oh, I'm going to go walk the earth with no clothes and touch everybody. That's not what I mean, but like doing what you can do to, to call out these, these uh, oppressive systems to their face. You know, that's why I use my platform. I just speak the truth and to whoever will listen. And anyone in my circle who's close to me knows that I'll do whatever I can for them, whatever is in my power. And I think that not to say that I'm some self-righteous, my spirit is so, you know, pure because it's not. My spirit is yeah. just as corrupt as those people that you uh, experience, you know, that you have spoken about. And it, it's corrupt because I've grown up in this system. So I understand the, 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 the evil that, that comes and, and that can see right back into my mind tomorrow if I decided I wanted to exploit somebody. I'm not... Uh, I haven't figured out the cure is what I'm saying. Like, I'm not, I'm not at that space where I am, what do you call, immune to the sickness, but I'm conscious of it. So I can, it's, it's like a, a reminder. Remembrance is, is one of these huge concepts in Islam of like, okay, when you're taught something, remember it. Like, it's on you to remember the, these, these tools and these concepts and understand that, okay, you're going to wake up in a capitalist structure again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Like, what are you going to choose to do? You know, so I, that's why I, I keep saying I have deep empathy because we, yeah. we've all kind of inherited this sickness and it's not until we begin to unlearn what we've been taught, unlearn the bigotry we've been taught, unlearn the exploitive yeah. uh, ways that we've been taught, can yeah. we begin to speak the truth and walk, walk on that road, you know? Yeah, and Fab, you, you bring up with, you know, you talk about, we're analyzing, we're talking about folks and their motives and their spirits in economic terms, right? For we bring up the New Deal, the New Deal in the post-World War II economic boom, but you know, it, it was sort of a boom laid on top of the instruments of the New Deal is the biggest upward social mobility in American history, right? Just statistically, that was the creation of a middle class. But I think a lot of people, when people see wealth and people sort of flourishing in, in sort of suburbs or, or starting businesses and so forth. The New Deal was actually anti-capitalist. That's why it worked. It was a bundling of socialist programs. You know, literally the policy of welfare, you know, is a socialist policy that well, Black people were excluded from, but simultaneously taxed to fund, right? You know, so Mercer, uh, I keep talking about the book as far as reading it and we're sort of geeking out the color of money, black banks and the racial wealth gap. You know, I think in the book, is either in the book or some other talks, he talks about like the capitalist sort of Bible, Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas uh, Piketty. And he talks about how through sort of the formula, how capitalism actually works and, and leads to very bad ends and how the New Deal was, you know, an anomalous break from capitalism you know it's sort of like capitalism is this trend across american history but the new deal actually reversed it and as a result birthed this just new flourishing middle class and you know sort of this is the thing that actual welfare and equality is going to come from socialist programs not capitalist ones just as you know white folks in their history look at you know oh look at we got all this wealth that must be from capitalism number one that history is incorrect you know, number, mm -hmm. but number two, you know, they say what it what allows people to do, a society to do is point to black people and say, hey, listen, you all can achieve the same wealth, you know, that you, that you don't have, you know, disproportionately through capitalism. 
But that's not how white wealth was achieved. It wasn't achieved through capitalism. So then you ascribe, you, you prescribe capitalism to, to the black population. They're not going to get there. They're just going to spin their wheels and they're going to get people, you know, like Farb alluded to, you know, this sort of Harlem influencer saying, hey, listen, real estate is the way. Stocks and bonds are the way. Da, 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 da. Like entrepreneurship then created the divide. So therefore, entrepreneurship cannot close it. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it is attacking the notion of capitalism and what we think it actually achieved in this country when it actually didn't, you know? So I, you know, I just wanted to draw that distinction. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. For sure. Well, um, I, Ed, I think we're about to run out of time. I actually want to ask right, a totally right. disjointed question to Genesis though. That's not about our conversation really, but it all plays mm -hmm. back. We, we've, been, we've been talking a lot about the BP pick and uh, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty strong in one direction. Well, we're, we're all over the, well, Jim feels a little bit differently than you and I do, Ed, but uh, Genesis, I'm curious if you put any time or thought into some of the BP picks that are out there and whether you think it makes a difference or if there's anyone that you, you would like to see. <laughs> um, no, I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but you know, I'm a, I'm a Warren fan. Hey! In general, let's go, you know? Let's go. In you said general. the right. You said the right words on this pod. That's that's the oh, magic word. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'm a Warren fan in general. Do I think she'd make the best VP pick? I don't. I don't know. You know, I really haven't thought yeah. too much about it. I guess I should think more about that. But <laughs> we've been just I'm chatting of the fact of like, not at top of my priority list right now. <laughs> nah, nah. I just wanted to end it on something kind of just a little. It's a little different. We're probably a few weeks away from people talking about it a lot. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff going on. I think they're making the pick August 1. But last night, I saw a friend of mine, you know, saying, like, Let, let's pick Warren. Let's not just pick, you know, a prosecutor just because she's a person of color. Uh, so there's obviously some, some conflicting thoughts here. But uh, Genesis, you know, we love seeing you. I mean, this, this weekend, I, I mean obviously like just seeing this moment that you've been fighting for that you know we right. so many of us who've known you know you've been doing this yes you had like some viral moments but the majority of it's been you know just you just out there uh doing the work so we appreciate right. you and you know there's so many more things to come but it's got to feel good to you know feel like the work that you're doing is actually like mattering and, and coming to fruition and people are starting to listen so uh yeah our hats off to you and everyone go check out genesis follow her give to her patreon she's an artist she's an activist she's out there support her and we'll be back next week for sure thank you we'll share all the links and everything too yeah make sure you guys share my uh organization strive till i where people can make tax deductible donations to my work and my collaborators done and done all right all. thank you all so much much love and peace